Well, good evening. I'm Carla Hayden with the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome and thank you for coming for another edition of a very special Writers Live series and guests. And I have to say, we were just down in the poll room on the second floor because there's an overflow crowd. And so we promised to give a shout out to the people in the poll room. And we're excited in um, everything. Of course, you know that Chris Hayes, many of you have already told me that you see him every weekend morning on MSNBC, on Up with Chris Hayes. He has had a front row seat covering national politics, especially during this uh, past election. And we're all eager to hear his insights. I would be remiss with this overflow crowd if I didn't mention that there are going to be a few other authors coming in the next few weeks. So Chris, Please. you understand. Go to town. <laughs> Tuesday, January 29th, Pulitzer Prize winning historian and Baltimore native Taylor Branch will be discussing his new book, The King Years. And on February 28th, we are so pleased that Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor will be here. So for our complete schedule, get on our website. You can tweet us. You can Facebook us. You can Instagram us. And Roswell Encina, who's our social media person, says, stop right now. So as I mentioned, Up With Chris Hayes is a show that everyone makes sure that they see on Saturday and Sundays. And you also see him uh, regularly substituting for Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell. In addition to being on MSNBC and an editor-at-large for The Nation, he's a former fellow at Harvard University's Edmund Safra um, Foundation Center for Ethics. Also a Bernard Schwartz Fellow at the New, American, New America Foundation and a Schumann Center Writing Fellow at In These Times. He's written, as you know, a variety of political and social issues on those from union organizing to economic democracy. And I can tell, and I can go on from the Washington Monthly, The Guardian, he's been praised by political G GQ. <laughs> and even Entertainment Weekend. So you don't want to hear me, Chris Hayes. How's it going, y'all? Overflow room, this, the, the, this room I'm in is, is terrible and bleak. You guys, are, you guys really nailed it. You're totally lucky. Um, well, Taylor Branch and Sonia Sotomayor is incredibly august company. Um, have you, how many people here have read the Taylor Branch uh, King Years trilogy, or parts of it? Who are we kidding, really? <laughs> Who are we kidding? Parts. Well, if you, if you haven't, I, I, I can't think of many books um, that I would recommend more strongly um, than than those books. Uh, they're remarkable. And I think the thing that's remarkable about those books, which is something 
I usually get to at the very end of a talk, but maybe we'll start with, is, um, you know, we have this very understandably romantic and, and sentimental view of the civil rights movement because it, it achieved something that was so transcendent and sublime, something that seems more than mere politics, really, something like a repair of the American soul, something that is um, transcendent in its own way, uh, an absolute and concrete betterment of the human condition, a kind of liberation that we don't get to see that often. And because we have this sentimentalized view of the civil rights movement because of the great successes of it and because of the way that we have in many ways turned Dr. Martin Luther King into this almost cartoonish-like figure, it's very easy to be removed from and alienated from the granular reality of what the civil rights movement was. And what the civil rights movement was, as you learned from the Taylor Branch books, was a lot of meetings. I mean, just a lot of meetings. There's that great Oscar Wilde quote where he says, the problem with socialism is it takes up too many evenings. <laughs> Which is someone who's sort of spent his life in the American left, I can attest to that. And there are accounts of the Montgomery bus boycott in the first um, in the first Taylor Branch book, Parting the Waters, which is the early King years. And King is a young 26-year-old pastor in uh, Montgomery. And much of that book is taken up with the bus boycott. And they, they write about the bus boycott. And you think now, again, bus boycott. Well, people just didn't go on the bus. You got to get thousands of people to work. It's just a logistical problem. Someone's got to make a spreadsheet. <laughs> Seriously. That's, I mean, at the end, all liberation rests on the cornerstone of spreadsheets. <laughs> this is a truth about social progress, right? And what's amazing about the Taylor Branch books is that they're so granular. I mean, there are 45-page accounts of, of meetings in that book. Hot nights in a Montgomery church basement in the summer in the South a meeting that goes on for eight hours. I mean, think about that. Just the sheer boredom, the sheer frustration, the rage you would feel when someone spoke too long <laughs> under those conditions, right? And there is no top-down outside authority to appeal to under those conditions. Okay, you're going to run a bus boycott, so all these people need to get to work, and they can't use the means of getting to work they would normally use. So all of a sudden, you find yourself as a transportation planner for part of Montgomery, Alabama. And this incredibly important, iconic, turning point moment in human social progress, certainly American social progress, rests on whether you can pull off spiritually, emotionally, and logistically the day-to-day -day details of getting people to work so they don't lose their jobs, so you can maintain the boycott, so you can win this epochal victory for justice. So the, the roots of social change, the real reality, the lived reality of social change are long meetings and spreadsheets and calling trees when those used to exist <laughs> and chain emails and the like. So you should, guys, should go see Taylor Branch and fellow Bronx native justice, Sonia Sotomayor. Um, so I thought I would start, let me see, where, I don't, what am I, 706, okay. 
So I thought, I thought I would start tonight's talk in a different place than I usually start these talks, since we've got some news this week. So I figured I would be timely. You guys are applauding before I say what the news is, which I think actually is going to bore all of you. But just like hang with me for a little bit. Um, so the news is that there's going to be this interview aired tomorrow. Perhaps you've heard of this. This has gotten some attention. Um, there, there's going to be an interview aired tomorrow with Lance Armstrong, uh, with, with a, a woman by the name of Oprah Winfrey, um, in which Lance Armstrong, where all reports indicate, is going to admit that he was uh, doping while he won his six, six, seven? Th thank you. <laughs> Instant fact-checking. <laughs> Um, so Lance Armstrong is going to admit this. Now, has anyone here read the, the USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency report? Taking a look at the... Uh... Okay, you're, you're laughing because that's a ridiculous question, but, but it's a pretty compelling document. I have to say, like, it's not a chore because the details of the operation that was the essentially Armstrong criminal empire are shocking. I mean, think for a second. You know, it's one thing if, in the privacy of my own conscience, I decide to cheat. So I have this, this, this kind of little world of lies I have to create in which I need someone to supply me with, cheat, with, with the things with which to cheat, right? Um, and I got to make some monetary transactions to buy them. And then I also need to kind of obscure my behavior from probably my teammates. And one can imagine a situation which I'll talk about and I wrote a, about at some length in the book in which you are embedded in an institution in which this cheating has become so normal and normalized that you don't have to spend a tremendous amount of cognitive energy on the last part of that. And in fact, on the first part either. In fact, it's very easy to cheat. You can find the supplier through a friend and then you can go shoot up B12, quote unquote, B12 vitamin shots in your rear end in the locker room and no one's gonna question you because other people are doing the same. Kind of a don't ask, don't tell situation. <laughs> but think about what it would be to run an entire team of cheaters, right? I mean, think about the organizational, getting back to the spreadsheet question, right? Think about the organizational load of running an entire team of people that are cheating, that are systematically deceiving international agencies and international law enforcement agencies, not just international agencies tasked with patrolling your sport, which really, at the end of the day, who cares? I mean, it's not, you know, there's real problems in the world, right? Doping and cycling is not one of them. <laughs> Let's stipulate that up front. I'm using this as a sort of microcosm to study a certain kind of institutional dysfunction. I don't care. But you, you have to run this organization that is going to systematically violate the law and lie to people. And it's going to need to be a pretty big organization because you're running a cycling team. And so everybody on the team has to dope. Otherwise, it doesn't work because you're only as weak as your weakest link. And presumably, you're going to recruit people into this team of a full spectrum of kind of moral dispositions. I mean... You're going to want to get the best cyclists, but some of those best cyclists might be real square do-gooders, and some might be cutthroat cheaters. 
And so what you're going to have to do is select these people for their athletic ability, and then you're going to have to find ways to essentially initiate them into the cult of cheating. Right? You have to go out and corrupt them. And the story of the U.S. anti-doping agency, which again is not Bible and may be wrong in certain key ways, but it appears to us has gotten the main things right, is the story of this remarkable organization that sort of existed to recruit people into duplicity. To, in this almost like Faustian sense, come to these athletes and say, you are on the precipice of everything you've always wanted, everything you have worked for your entire life, everything you've killed yourself for from the time you were young, all the early mornings, all the hard work, all the sweat, all the injury, all the doctor's visits. You are on the precipice of achieving everything, and there's one little step to get you over that precipice. Do you want to know what it is? People say yes. <laughs> people say yes. And so systematically people were corrupted. And then not only are you systematically corrupting people, you're initiating them into an institution that is to its roots corrupt, right? Is, is, is based on fraud and deceit and systematic misbehavior. But then you have to protect that. And of course, as the legend of Lance Armstrong grows, and the checkbook of Lance Armstrong grows, you need to protect that bank account. You need to protect that reputational cap capital. So when a young Irish masseuse who has been employed by the US team to give massages to cyclists is then pressed into duty carrying drugs across national lines through airports, and then tells the truth, you sue her for defamation in British courts and destroy her life and have one of your henchmen leave a message on her voicemail saying, I hope something terrible happens to you. It's not just that Lance Armstrong cheated, because again, who cares, right? It was the ruthlessness, the Tony Soprano-like way in which he managed to kind of totally corrupt this entire institution from the top down. And of course, he couldn't have done that if the institution itself wasn't ripe to be corrupted, because as we know, they can't award the tour jerseys to the second place finisher in any of his seven thank you victories, because every single one of those people have been either established to have been doping or suspected to have been doping. The other uh, bit of news was about the Baseball Hall of Fame writers. <laughs> no one got into the hall this year. Um, and no one got into the hall this year because the baseball writers didn't know what the hell to do with this chapter from baseball history in which everyone was cheating. Well, not everyone. But we don't know, do we? And so no one got in. So why did the steroids scandal happen in baseball? Why did, why, how, how does it come to be the case that an institution gets so thoroughly corroded? That was one of the questions that I started out thinking about this book. One 
when we think about professional sports, there's a quote in the book from the former commissioner of professional sports uh, of the baseball league, Faye Vincent. And he said, he had this line, which is that baseball is a meritocracy. We sort of like professional sports largely because of that. A, when we think about professional sports, we bring to it a really deep sense of fairness, an abiding sense of fairness that we feel is viscerally violated if things are not done on the up and up. The outrage over baseball juicing, I would say, is in excess of the outrage over, say, HSBC pleading out on systemically laundering billions of dollars for drug kingpins worldwide. It's like, well, what, you know, they're a big bank, I don't know, what are they doing? Barry Bonds. You bastard. <laughs> but it's partly because I think there's a healthy moral impulse in when we think about fairness and we think about cheating and we think about sports. And so Faith Vincent had this line where he said, baseball is a meritocracy. And I think most professional sports are. And what do, what do we mean by that word in that context? Well, what we mean is that the means by which you are judged in this institutional context are not any kind of contingent features about you. They're not about your connections. They're just purely your performance. And if you're good, you're rewarded, and if you're bad, you don't make it. And no amount of being someone's nephew or being in the same religious group is gonna get you through, right? If you're an aging slugger who's beloved and you can no longer hit a fastball, and you're 40 years old, it doesn't matter. You're gonna be out. And if you're a 19-year-old kid from the Dominican Republic who doesn't speak a lick of English, who maybe has a high school graduation, a high school degree, but can throw a 98-mile-per-hour fastball, you're gonna play, right? It's the performance matters, and these other contingent things don't. And that's the thing, when Faye Vincent says baseball is a true meritocracy, he is paying it a compliment. In American life, when we use that word, when we use that adjective, we always mean it as a compliment. It's the opposite of something that we always mean as an insult, which is bureaucratic, right? So no one, no one gets home from their first day of work and says, oh, I love my new job. The place is totally bureaucratic. <laughs> we all know what that means, right? Bureaucratic means sclerotic, hidebound, ineffective, turf-ridden, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, dysfunctional. But you can't imagine someone getting back from their first place at a, first day at a startup and say, I love the place. It seems totally meritocratic to me, right? That's a compliment. That's how Faye Vincent meant it. The other feature of meritocracy is the, particularly in institutional settings, is the presence of this kind of ceaseless competition. Right? The idea is that merit or performance is only truly revealed in a competitive enterprise, in a competitive context. Right? It's through being challenged and having to prove your medal and having to prove your performance that you're able to show that you are indeed possessed of merit, that you do deserve the pay for your performance. And so this combination of ceaseless competition, no um, deference given to things like seniority or connection, right? 
pure pay for performance. This is, what I am describing is both the model of professional sports, okay, and is also increasingly the ideal that we all subscribe to about how institutions should be structured. We think competition, pay for performance, these are the ways out of the dead end of disproven institutional designs like bureaucracies with their public sector unions and their seniority protections and their mandated holidays, blah, 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 blah. But there are costs to any institutional setup, right? And there are drawbacks. And one of the things you see from the baseball steroid scandal is that it is very difficult to design a system with high rewards for achievement and harsh punishments for failure that is not also a system with high rewards for cheating. It's very easy to set up these rules where you say, if you succeed and if you perform, you will make a lot of money. And if you don't, you will get sent down to the minors. And think that is going to induce performance. The incentive structure is perfectly aligned. I talked to a player who was a mid-level reliever for years. And one of the things that was striking about the interview, the guy's name is Kelly One, she now sells homes in Texas. He said, you know, you're stalked by this fear that every day is going to be your last day. You know, we think about baseball, we think about stars, we think about A-Rod, we think about people that have seven-year guaranteed contracts at $84 million, right? But that is not most baseball players, right? There's a lot of baseball players, and particularly if you take the full pyramid of professional baseball in this country, which includes AAA, AA, single A, and even leagues below that, right? Most professional baseball players are in this kind of Hobbesian maelstrom where their life and livelihood are on the line, where literally they enroll their kid in a school because it's the local school they're living in, and their wife has a job, and then they're going to come home someday and say, I've been traded. And so you need to leave your job, and the kid needs to come out of school, or I need to go away and not be present for the next few months. And this kind of fear of getting sent down to the minors, fear of the end of the career, looms over people. And so, naturally, <laughs> people will look for ways to game the system, right? There's an extremely um, innovative company in the 1990s that everyone who worked for, and I've interviewed a bunch of the people that worked at this company, praises for its lack of bureaucracy. They said it was the kind of place where, this is one, one, one person who was fairly high up in the organization said, it was the kind of place that truly was a meritocracy, dead wood wouldn't hang around, you couldn't just keep your job because you were someone's kid. It was the kind of place, people told me, where if you had a really good idea, it didn't matter where you were in the organizational hierarchy, you could go out and do it. And it was the kind of place where the CEO of the company would actually go around at company meetings and tell a story about someone below him who proposed a new line of business that he said no to. And she went around him and did it anyway, and it was incredibly successful. And he would tell this story 
of essentially insubordination. At company talks, to channel what he thought was the essence and ethos of this company. It was also a company that was written up in several business school journals for their hiring practices, one of whom, one of the HR people quoted said, we hire the most talented people and pay them more than they ever thought they could be worth. And it was also a company that implemented something called Rank and Yank which was that every other year, the top 10% of people, the bottom 10% of people in performance reviews were summarily fired or sent down to the miners. So the company by now, the punchline is that it's Enron. Enron was the darling of the business school press for all of the features I've just enunciated, right? It was an incredibly competitive place with incredibly high achieving people there was pay for performance instituted throughout. People really kind of ate what they killed, as one person told me, right? That's also a Wall Street phrase you hear a lot. Wall Street works very similarly. The big investment banks do have their own kind of hierarchy and structure, and there is a fair amount of patronage and someone's nephew, et cetera. But some of the smaller places and hedge funds and things like that, people make what they perform, right? They make a percentage of their returns. It's their RBI. It's their home runs. It's their batting average. There's a statistic that they produce a quantifiable metric of their performance, and their compensation is directly related to that. And yet, what you saw in Major League Baseball what you saw on Wall Street during the housing bubble, what you saw in Enron is that when you design a system around these principles, when you design a system to have high rewards for performance and harsh penalties for failure, you are also designing a system with high rewards for cheating. Right now, we are in the midst of a nationwide social experiment in which we are transitioning our model, our institutional model of the teaching profession from a bureaucratic one to a meritocratic one. Right? What is the phrase, the calling card of Michelle Reed and education performers? It is pay for performance. I'm going to have some number and I'm going to hit it and I'm going to get a bonus because I got that number. So what should we anticipate under these conditions? And what have we seen in droves? In fact, Stephen Levitt, before he became the famous Freakonomics Stephen Levitt, one of his earliest papers that got him a lot of notoriety was looking through data from Chicago teachers after these strict standards-based metrics had been imposed, the first wave of school reform in which test outcomes would determine the evaluation of teachers. And lo and behold, what did they find? an uptick in cheating. In Atlanta, we have a cheating scandal that the details of which are pretty remarkable. I mean, principals calling pizza parties while everyone sits around and systematically changes students' test scores. In Washington, D.C., there are schools that have ratios of wrong to right erasures that are literally one in a million odds of happening naturally. Michelle Rhee refuses to answer any questions about it, right? 
I, I, I say all this as a means of, of entry into complicating our notion of meritocracy. Look, we could all, I imagine in this room, offer up some critiques of bureaucracy. They are shop-worn, right? We all know what the critiques of bureaucracy are. But critiques of meritocracy, in particularly in institutional settings, are much, much harder to come by. They just don't get the same kind of play, right? We always just sort of know that the teachers' unions with their dinosauric commitment to seniority are standing in the way of the future, which is pay for performance. But pay for performance has its problems also. That word, meritocracy, has this kind of totemic significance in American life, even if the word itself doesn't, the idea does. It's the word we give to the modern incarnation of a very old American dream, which de Tocqueville himself writes about, right? In America, this place untethered by the legacy of feudalism, people, by which he means white people, could rise as far as their talents would take them. Thomas Jefferson said in a letter to James Madison, they were going back and forth about this issue quite a bit. You know, they were sort of obsessed with this idea of elites and the people. And, you know, if you've read Federalist Papers, you know Madison was sort of virulently anti-democratic in many ways, right? Someone once described the U.S. Constitution as a charter for plutocracy, which I think is an interesting phrase, right? There's obsessive worry about actually giving too much power to the mob and ways of protecting, particularly people with, with money, from the incursions of a democratic rabble. And Jefferson writes to Madison at one point, he said, I do not think an aristocracy is injurious so long as it is an aristocracy of merit. Right? If we have elites who aren't elites because of their birthplace, who aren't elites because of their tribal kinship connections, their specific denominational inheritance, their last name, but instead are elites because they have, quote, earned it, because they are the best and the brightest, to use a phrase from the 1960s, then things will be okay. Then the system is just and then the people making decisions will make the right kind of decisions. The irony is that the word meritocracy was coined in 1954 by a British left-wing critic named Michael Young, who wrote a book called The Rise of the Meritocracy, which was a kind of work of dystopic social criticism and satire about a future in England in which exactly this kind of system came about. And he meant it <laughs> to paint this sort of dark picture of what it would be like if all of society became oriented around finding and selecting for merit and elevating those people with merit, whether through testing or performance evaluations in firms. And yet, through some kind of bizarre alchemy, the term was appropriated. And so, on his deathbed in 2001, as Tony Blair campaigns over all over England, saying that the vision of new labor is meritocracy, Michael Young writes an op-ed for The Guardian saying, this is perverse. 
This is perverse. I wrote this as a social critique of precisely the kind of society we are becoming. I am... Um, I started this book because I think I felt something that I felt a lot of other people felt, um, which was just the experience of this last decade as a human being, as a citizen, and as, as a journalist was um, disquieting and disappointing and upsetting and kind of this sort of cascade of failure and betrayal. And I happened into the topic of this book because I happened to come across a chart that was on a website by Nate Silver of 538. <laughs> and he had just taken general social survey data and he said, look, look how Americans feel about their pillar institutions. And trust had just declined, fallen off the table across basically all of our pillar institutions. And I thought to myself, yeah, right, okay, so this is some kind of actual empirical fact out there about American public opinion, not just my own subjective feeling, my own wrenching sense of betrayal at the end of this decade, as someone who, frankly, is fairly disposed to kind of think everyone's got it under control, to think the people in charge are motivated by good intentions or know what they're doing. And at every point during what I call the fail decade, that kind of trust was rewarded with disaster. From the fact that the largest security system in, well, the most expensive security system in the history of human civilization couldn't stop 19 men with box cutters for pulling off mass murder. To the largest corporate bankruptcy in history, which is of course Enron, which is no longer the largest corporate bankruptcy in history, but was at the time, to the story about weapons of mass destruction that proved utterly false. To the spectacle of watching a American city drown live on national television while everybody stood by impotently. To the largest financial crisis in 70 years, $8 trillion of wealth just like that, up, gone from one day to the next. And the through line of all of this seemed to be that the people in charge, the people who, quote, should have known better, should have known what they were doing, didn't know better, or were too corrupt and blinkered to do what we would want them to do. The whole reason, right, that we have elites, <laughs> that we have people with this kind of disproportionate amount of power and influence is that there's this kind of outsourcing that happens, right? Society's big and complicated. Our institutions are big and complicated. We can't just get together in a nice room like this and vote on every goddamn thing that happens. So there are these people that we sort of have, we, we give this specialized ability to. It's kind of like our human interactions with our doctors or our mechanics. You know cars. What, what sound is this making? Right? And there's a certain amount of trust in that relationship if it's going to function. But every time that any citizen came to their elites or came to their institutions over the past decade with that trust, it was repaid with incompetence or corruption. And so what you find in public opinion at the end of this long decade is historically low levels of public trust in our institutions. 
And this bizarre, balkanized, epistemic situation we find ourselves in now, in which no one can trust any of our pillar institutions, and everybody kind of is hermetically sealed off in their own universe, means that the common table of democracy is sort of broken. No one, there's no place that we can go gall sit around to come to the level of consensus that would be necessary for the level of social change that we need to both ensure living up to our basic commitments to justice and fairness, but also to avoid climate cataclysm. You guys are depressed. Is it quiet because you're listening or you're bored? Okay, 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 that's fine, that's fine. Just, just checking in, seeing how we're doing. <laughs> okay, thank you, very good, great, right answer, whoever said that. I'll quit while I'm ahead. Two more thoughts and then I'll take some questions. So, we have this situation with this declining trust in our pillar institutions, right? And you might think, um, when you think about the relationship between what we know and who we trust, okay, I think the natural way to think about it is knowledge comes first and we use that knowledge to figure out who we trust. Okay, so in the example of the mechanic, right? If he tells me he fixes my car and he doesn't fix my car a bunch of times, I'll stop trusting him and I'll go to some other mechanic. I use the knowledge that I have of our past interactions, right? Or if a coworker reliably has the best gossip about personnel decisions upstairs and tells you at the water cooler and they prove to be true time and time again, you'll come to trust that coworker. But in a lot of ways, the relationship actually functions in the reverse, which is to say trust is actually prior to everything we know about the world. Everything we know about the world just we know because someone we trust told us. And there's a bunch of different ways that we can verify things. We can go out and look at consensus, right? It's an iterative process. It's not just like one person says something and we trust them, so it's true. We have a basic level of empiricism, right? But if I sit here and ask you, as I have been engaged in certain public opinion events, about 9-11 being an inside job, okay? Well, the person who is engaging me in the crowd, they know more about the details of what happened in 9-11. I mean, they've spent four or five or six years looking into it, right? And I can't break their frame and they can't break my frame. Because at a certain base level, there's just too much stuff going around to actually bring our full, rigorous, empirical capacities to bear on everything. You just read an article in the New York Times. What the hell's happening in Mali? You read an article in the New York Times. Now, maybe the art author from the New York Times is a fabulist like Jason Blair. Right? Or maybe, this story just broke before I came here, the number two Heisman candidate in the country, 
who told a story, a tragic story about his girlfriend who died of leukemia on the day that he had two interceptions against Michigan State, made up the existence of the girlfriend who it turns out never existed and was reported on CBS News and on the AP. Now, we all who read that story just took it because we trusted the AP or we trusted CBS. And what I'm trying to get at here is when there is no common locus of trust, the basic mechanics of democratic dialogue break down. Right? I can go tell the people that listen to Glenn Beck these facts about guns. But those facts, are like, no, I'm not, and I'm not saying this, I'm saying this because everyone in this room does the same thing, okay? <laughs> that I can go tell them that they come from the CDC. And they're going to say, I don't believe the CDC's figures. These are the numbers that come from the NRA. And I'm going to say, I don't believe the NRA's figures. Now, I'm not a complete, lest, lest you get the wrong impression, I'm not some total like epistemic relativist, right? There are facts, there are things that are true in the world, there is some certain number of people that were actually killed by guns, I'm an empiricist, right? But the reality of how things are is very different than the descriptive process by which we actually acquire knowledge in the world. And the descriptive process by which we acquire knowledge in the world is that we go out and we get stuff, bits of information from people we trust. That's 90% of it. And sometimes when something happens, like Jason Blair, we think, oh my God, well, maybe I should read the next thing with a grain of salt, but then that goes away. So then we go back and we say, what's happening in Mali? We read the New York Times in Mali. And the New York Times is amazing. Great institution, right? But I'm just trusting them. The reason that I ended up writing about meritocracy in the book is because when I started asking this question to myself of why have our institutions performed so poorly, the answer that I seemed to be getting was that our elites have performed poorly. And then the question becomes, well, what is it about our elites that they have performed poorly? What is it about the system that forms them? The kind of social system that produces our elites that we think of what kind of elite we have? How is it different than elites in the past? And it's not in any sense any better or worse. It's just different. And you come to the formative process of meritocracy. Because meritocracy says something that is very appealing, but deeply divergent from what our basic democratic commitments are. And I want to end on this note. It is extremely easy to lose sight of how radical a notion democracy is. We live in a democracy. Well, what does that mean? There's a polling place, it's a few blocks away, it's really slow, <laughs> go there, set a line, set up a check, give it back to them, I go home, I turn on cable news, oh, sweet. <laughs> I go to work. If you go back and you read these theorists who are writing in Europe in the 1910s around this sort of period in which democratic revolutions had really looked like they weren't going anywhere. There have been a few still-birthed democratic revolutions in Europe, obviously, the French and then the mid-19th century. In the 1910s, just prior to World War I, it kind of looks like, oh man, this democracy thing isn't sort of a tougher beast to kill than we thought. And you have a bunch of these theorists, right-wing theorists, opposed to democracy, writing about 
well, how do we deal with this thing? And they are facing something about the nature of democracy that we lose sight of precisely under the system we have when we think about it as deciding who to designate decisions to. Because the radical, improbable, magical brilliance of democracy is that no one else decides but us, ultimately. Think about that. Actually think about that. Everyone in this room, everyone on your bus, everyone in your office who you cannot stand, even the idiot who leaves his lunch in the refrigerator for a week and a half, that guy and you get together and you talk it out and you figure out what to do. That is a very different idea than the idea of figuring out who the smartest and best performers are and cultivating them and putting them in some positions of power and having them make the best decisions. Now, should we vote on everything? Like, who gets to be a surgeon? No, obviously not. <laughs> so I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I do think that it is a necessary feature of democracies that they are not stable equilibriums because the tendency is for power to cool, to pool, and to collect. The tendency is not for power to stay diffuse. The tendency is if 10 people start a group project, by the third month of the project, there's one of two people who are really running that project, right? And Robert Michels, I'll end on this if you're getting antsy. Robert Michel is a German social theorist who was a student of Max Weber's, um, whose work I came about in, in, in working on the book. He's a fascinating guy. He starts out as kind of a social democrat, sort of milk toast, kind of like me. And um, frustrated with the social democratic party, becomes radicalized and ends up joining the kind of left-wing, hardcore anarcho-syndicalists. And he just discovers the same problem among the left-wing anarcho-syndicalists that he had had with the Social Democrats, which is this party organization is just completely hidebound and hierarchical. So he, he, starts, he starts with this inquiry. He starts to write this book based on a very simple inquiry. He says, okay, look, the parties of the right, they believe in hierarchy. So it's natural that they are hierarchical, right? But the parties of the left believe in democracy. Why the hell are they so hierarchical? Why is it that these parties of the left, I keep moving further and further to the left, and I keep finding parties that are just still run by this small coterie of corrupt morons? <laughs> and he writes a book explaining this called Political Parties, and he coins something called the Iron Law of Meritocracy. He basically says, look, to run an organization, you have to give people differentiated tasks. You have to delegate. And so someone ends up running the organization press. And someone ends up scheduling the union hall for who can use it. And very quickly, once you've started to delineate tasks, you have give pe given people differentiated power, and then people will use that differentiated power to keep more power to themselves until they form this kind of oligarchic little clique. He says, who says organization says oligarchy? The very fact of just getting people together to do stuff is going to produce hierarchy. Now, this is 
a profounding, profoundly dispiriting conclusion for a leftist. <laughs> no, it really is. I'm losing my voice. And Michelle's would ultimately throw in the towel and decide there was no people's revolution, that the only way to actually empower people was to channel their voice through an authentic, charismatic figure of the Vogue, and he would move to Italy and become a fascist. <laughs> but the Michels who wrote political parties was still a committed man of the left. And so he said to himself at the end of this book, well, I just laid out this really bummer of a thesis. So what do I tell people on the left who believe in democracy? And he tells this fable, this parable, that I think about all the time, that I've kept with me in my head and my heart since I first encountered it. And the parable is about an old man who's a peasant who has a small plot of land and two sons. And on his deathbed, he brings the sons to his bed and he says, I've buried treasure on this land. And when I'm gone, it will take care of you. So when I'm gone, I want you to go and dig it up. He won't tell them where. And the old man dies, and the sons take his word, and they set out with their shovels, and they dig, and they dig, and they dig, and they dig, and they dig. And they never find it. And Michelle writes that they never find the treasure, but in digging up the soil, they plow it. And in plowing the field, they secure for themselves a relative well-being. And democracy, Michelle says, is the treasure we seek. That we may never actually find the treasure, that it may not actually be there, but in the process of laboring and struggling for it, we secure ourselves gains in a democratic sense. That there is no final equilibrium, there is no static state at which we have achieved equality and justice and mass empowerment. The forces of oligarchy, the cliques, the pooled power, the special interests, they will fight back and claw back power after every single game. And we just keep digging. It's like the Camus essay about the myth of Sisyphus. He writes about the myth of Sisyphus. He writes about Sisyphus every day getting up and rolling rock up the hill, and every day the, the rock goes down. And he thinks about the kind of sublime nobility of that endeavor. As pointless as it is, it's actually just the process and struggle of doing it. And the last line of the essay famously is, one imagines Sisyphus happy. Thank you. Uh, we have time for a few questions, and I see uh, someone right here, and I'm just going to let you pass. It. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> good evening. Um, and surely, uh, good evening. Thank good evening. You. It's better than um, sitting in the den at eight o'clock on Saturday morning. <laughs> My question is the word democracy itself which is such a slippery word. 
I think if you polled the people in this room alone, who are probably by and large of the same bent, you would get so many different responses. And so when you say democracy, what are we really talking about? That's a great question. Um, it, it means a lot of things. Um, I would say two things to that. One is, we tend to lose sight in America because we have this kind of exceptionalism fetish that there's a lot of other democracies. And they do things a lot of different ways. And one of the things I think that we don't have enough of in American political dialogue, dialogue is just like comparative conversations. You know, not every problem that we encounter as a society are we are encountering alone. You know, and this is relevant to the gun conversation. Australia had this big mass killing. They passed this gun legislation. They haven't had any mass shooting since. It was obviously very germane to the healthcare discussion, right? So the Swiss do this, the Dutch do this, the Israelis do this, the Danes do this, etc. So there are a lot of different institutional setups that count as democracy. But what I would say is um, America is a democracy with a lot of anti-democratic institutions. <laughs> By design. Like I said, I mean, the founders, you know, there's this... There's actually some really interesting political science literature about how doomed presidential and presidentialism, like our kind of system, has been. Um, because it tends to arrive at impasses that look like the debt ceiling. And in young democracies, the debt ceiling is followed by a coup, basically. Um, because you have different parties that can claim democratic mandates, right? A parliamentary system, you know, if if the if the party can't claim a mandate, it falls apart. There's a new round of elections. Who's elected does have a mandate, and that mandate is fairly unequivocal. It doesn't mean they can do whatever they want. There's other institutional impediments, right? So, you know, the U.S. system has the Senate, which let's be very clear: the Senate was just a corrupt bargain with the slave power. That's all. It's not. I mean. Super complicated. <laughs> we think about like three-fifths. So three-fifths is a stain, and then we got rid of it. We passed the 14th Amendment. You know, but the entire Senate was essentially a bargain with the slave power. So we have the Senate, which is anti-democratic. And now we have a norm that's developed in the Senate of two-thirds, a supermajority, which is even more anti-democratic, right? And this is where I think like having this commitment to democracy really matters because you can have these arguments with fellow, fellow liberals about getting rid of the filibuster and they say, oh God, but if we got rid of the filibuster, then they could undo things I like. And the answer is, yeah, that's democracy. And I think that you have to have the courage of your convictions on this score. I mean, Arizona is a great example. Arizona passed clean elections, public funding. And there's certain liberals in Arizona and elsewhere who say, well, all it led to was empowering these Tea Party nuts because we didn't have big money. And then these random folks got enough signatures and got public funding and they got elected to the state legislature. Tough. Like, that sucks. And that sucks for all those folks there who are suffering. I mean, I don't want to like dismiss 
the real human misery that causes and the damage it does. But the battle you have is just a battle on a democratic plane. And you have to have, I mean, this is an abiding faith of mine and it's, it is a faith. It's not, I wouldn't even like argue for it rationally, right? That yes, the mass of people can determine what's best. And now, does that mean, again, mob rule? No, obviously minority protections are incredibly important. We have the Bill of Rights for all sorts of reasons. All of, all of the kind of infrastructure of rights that go with what we think of as modern liberal democracy are incredibly important, right? You would never want to have a situation in which a majority of people could pass a law to massively intern a certain racial minority, right? Odious, no one would ever want that. But in the context of genuine, strong, rights, protections from incursions of the state, protections from majority overreach, right? I think we would benefit from a kind of democratic renaissance where we had a genuinely something that looked more, an institutional structure that was less hostile to democracy. Hi, um, so I've heard, I'm a big per in uh, activist circles in my little communities and um, also in the media. And I've heard a lot of older, those of older generations talking about the incredible democratizing power of social media, which it does potentially have. But I'm also 17 and I'm friends with kids from high school on Facebook. And I see that the level of discourse there is fairly low. Uh, it's based on new cars and football teams and things that don't tend to make an impact. And when someone comes in and tries to talk about social change, you tend to get shut down. And so my question is how we can use social media hmm. and how we can try to change the power structures that exist within that as such to use mm. it for social change when it is currently ineffective. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as the applause indicates, that's a damn good question. Um, I think that's an interesting insight. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that, frankly. Um, you know, there are, um, I think one thing I would say about social media is that it, I sort of do, I, I agree with both the proponents and the skeptics of it as a kind of medium for democratic revival and social change. Um, the proponents say that it is radically empowering and, you know, in some ways it is. I mean, I, I think you can lose sight of the fact, and you're a perfect example. Um, so how many, this is slightly prying question, so you can lie, but just play along. Um, so how many Facebook friends do you have? Just, yeah, yeah, that doesn't matter. Okay, great. That's a great answer. Okay, 1,000 Facebook friends. Okay. No, think about this. Okay, you're 17 years old. You have 1,000 Facebook friends. So, no, think about this. You want 1,000 different people to know some piece of information. Like, there's going to be a protest down here in downtown over someone being wrongfully imprisoned uh, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Okay. So you post that on your Facebook and a thousand people see it. Now, imagine the year is 1983, okay? And you are a tenured faculty member at Johns Hopkins, okay? 
shut up. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Barnes and Nobles, Barnes and Nobles. Um, you're a tenured faculty member, and you similarly are an activist, have a commitment to social justice, and someone else has been wrongly imprisoned, and you want people to come out to a protest the next day at 3 p.m. Good freaking luck telling a thousand people. I mean, seriously. Put something up in the faculty lounge. You um, knock on some doors on your block. You tell your freshman lecture of 200 kids, hope some of them show up. So the point is that like every single teenager in America who's on Facebook now, more or less, from you to people, from kids in Harlem and the South Bronx and East New York and Brooklyn, have access to a, a network, a platform, that is orders of magnitude bigger than even relatively elite members of society did 20 or 30 years ago. And there's not a lot of things, there are not a lot of sources of power that have gotten more democratically distributed over that, those 30 years, right? Money has concentrated more, right? Skills and, and sort of educational expertise have concentrated, right, after we hit the kind of plateau in, in college attainment around the 1980s. So that's a genuinely radical, amazing thing. Okay, but then the problem is what you mentioned, which is like people want to talk about that Joe Flacco pass, which was amazing. <laughs> Seriously, that game was amazing. Um, I'm envious of you guys. Ugh. Yeah, well. So, and not only that, but the fact that these same kind of power tendencies tend to reassert themselves online, right? What people want to talk about, social taboo, the re-inscription re of norms, bullying that's gender-based or about sexual orientation or bullying that's has really r ugly racial overtones. And I think in some ways, not to get super, not to overthink this, but I do think that like it is an example of Michelle's iron law of oligarchy, right? It is a democratic median, but like if you look at Twitter, for instance, something like 20% of Twitterers have 80% of the followers, right? So you have this tremendous concentration that happens even though the medium in and of itself has this broad democratic potential. I do not know the solution for that. Um, several, several years ago, I was uh, at a party with my wife sitting next to me, and uh, a coworker came up and said, do you know that we are about to become a minority in this country? And my wife said, looked at him and said, so what? And we, you know, went on, fast forward several years, and now what we see, I think, is that this mostly all-white minority, rather than try to adjust to the changing circumstances, seems to be more and more threatened. And I see more gaming of the system. I see more cheating and more creative ways to try to ensure that being a minority doesn't involve losing power. What's your thought about that?
Um, so I think, I think that's fairly on the mark. Um, you know, I think there is one of the, the really interesting features of um, the modern right, modern conservative media sphere particularly, is the degree to which it is lucrative to cater to the sense of grievance of older white people. Um, no offense to older white people. <laughs> I know some of them, they're great. Some of my best friends. Um, but, but, but I think that there is this incredibly, I basically think, yes, the, the writing on the wall demographically combined with the election of Barack Obama, combined with the fact that the coalitions, the political coalitions in America are increasingly assembling along these two lines, right? Which is that there's one party that is basically entirely white, right? And there is one coalition, it's a coalition, and it's a coalition that's almost entirely white. And there's another coalition that is multiracial. And this is becoming more and more the case. Here's an incredible bit of data from the, from the exit polling. After the, and so what you have, the kind of politics you get under those conditions, particularly when you have the people in one coalition, right, who are, ironically enough, beneficiaries of and adhere and believers in the big social welfare, social democratic institutions we have, which is Social Security and Medicare, right, also belong to the coalition that is most hostile to those same ideologically. So this is the like, get your government hands off my Medicare thing, right? <laughs> but what happens every time, every, what, what happens every time that the Republicans, we're gonna, we gotta cut entitlements, bring the hammer down, and they get in the car, and they step on the glass, and they play chicken, and they swerve on entitlements. Why do they swerve on entitlements? Because their coalition benefits from them. They tried to run a national campaign in which they had simultaneously had someone on the ticket who had proposed privatizing Social Security and Medicare by accusing their opponent of having it out for Medicare. And that makes no sense except for the fact that you have this very strange situation in terms of America's political coalitions right now, which is that the Republican Party is in median age older and much, much whiter than the rest of the country. And it also makes it difficult politically for Republican leaders to speak to the whole country because they have to cultivate, they have to basically test out their material on an incredibly unrepresentative audience, right? So they go and they do their stand-up in the primaries and they get huge laughs at certain jokes that they then go and tell a bunch of people and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. You, what are you, don't say, what are you talking about? And they sort of look like dumbstruck, like that got, that killed. Two months ago I was in a room, that killed. 
And you, and you see this recognition in, you know, you saw it in the way that they talked about immigration in the primary, right? Mitt Romney killed Rick Perry because he wanted to give a $100,000 subsidy to illegals for education. Because Texas is a version of the DREAM Act, okay? Killed him. Relished killing him. Nailed him from the right. But then that's hung around his neck. And he lost Latinos by more than John McCain did. And the most revealing bit of exit polling data in the entire 2012 election is a relatively small part of the population, Asian Americans. Asian Americans are about, I want to say, 2% of the population. But they're going to be 5% by mid-century. They're the fastest growing eth census ethnic subcategory. Now think for a second. All racial categories are constructed, right? We can agree, right? But Asian American is particularly constructed in the sense that what exactly does a Filipino nurse in Hartford, Connecticut, right? A fifth generation Chinese American cop in San Francisco and a Pakistani first generation oil engineer in Texas have in common. There's no reason that this group of people that you throw some census lasso around should vote in any discernible way, right? But in the history of American politics, racial identity has often been forged in the furnace of white resentment, right? It has been white hatred and white supremacy and white hierarchy that has produced these identities as a kind of bulwark against it. Okay? In 1992, George H.W. Bush won Asian Americans in an election he lost to Bill Clinton by about 60-40. Mitt Romney lost Asian Americans 75 to 25 by 50 points. And what that tells you is, even if no one is getting that constant tone of white racial grievance that is emanating out from the Republican Party, those folks get it, right? People know when you are not welcome in their coalition. People aren't dumb. They're not going to come. So all this sort of theater about like, well, we'll nominate Marco Rubio, and then <laughs> People are not dumb. And to me, that the Asian American number shows that, right? Because in some ways, like Asian American issues weren't even like weren't all the all the sort of immigrant baiting was very his, like Latino focused and about Mexico and the border. But people can hear what is in those words; they can get the affect. And so, the degree to which white racial grievance, this very racialized white grievance, this fear of the demographic bomb, the fear of being a minority, is kind of the subtext of Republican Party politics, it's, it's totally toxic. Uno mas. Chris, before I get started with a question, I just want to say it's an honor. Oh, thanks. That's kind of you. Um, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about uh, the book, uh, The King Years, you mentioned something about uh, meetings being the, uh, the birthplace of democracy, spreadsheets and stuff like that. In this march towards a 
meritocracy in this country. Do you find that meritocracies often spring up as the as a result of impatience at the process hmm. that democracy hmm. requires? That's a really interesting question. Huh. I think I think I'd have to think long and hard about that. I'm serious. I, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I think that um I think in some ways meritocracy is the is is kind of a justifying ideology of power. It's the name we give to the who's running things. <laughs> yeah, please. So in the case of say like uh, in the in the case of journalism with like a Jonah Lair, okay, where there was so much pressure that just to meet this great guy, okay, or in the case of say the um, in the case of Lance Armstrong, he wanted to be great, but he didn't want to actually work at being great. No, but see, I disagree with that. See, here's the thing I think that's fascinating about Jonah Lair and Lance Armstrong, right? And this is true about people at Enron, and it's true about the people on Wall Street who basically blew up the economy, is they did work hard, right? We have this idea of the cheater as kind of shiftless, right? The idea is like if you work hard, then you can get ahead and the people who want to take shortcuts, right, are the cheaters. But that's not what was happening on Wall Street during the boom years. It's not what was happening at Enron. It wasn't helping. I mean, Lance Armstrong, you want to talk about work. I mean, the dude had to train and also run a criminal enterprise. <laughs> like, he had two jobs. That's a pain in the ass. Right? Like that's so so my point is that, you know, that's that's I think part of the perversion of meritocracy is 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 actually precisely that, which is that the people that get corrupted within it are really hardworking, right? They're hardworking, but hard work only gets you so far. And if you're in a system, if you're in a competitive system in which the person on the other side of the interaction is cheating, and you're working really hard and they're cheating, it's very tempting to cheat. And the irony of it, the grand irony of it all, is that what you end up doing in a system that becomes completely corroded and corrupted, like baseball or, or cycling, is that all these people are working really hard and they're cheating, okay? So what they're doing, hilariously, is reproducing the same interactions they would be having if they were both just working really hard. Like, it's the pitcher who's juicing against the batter who's juicing. It's like, bro, let's just both not juice. <laughs> like, if you, could, if, you could, if you could come up with some kind of treaty, right? If you could come up with some sort of collective way of enforcing these norms, people would, at, at, by the end, when everyone, look, everyone in the Tour de France is juicing, so maybe Lance Armstrong just really is the best cyclist. <laughs> right? I mean, people were making that argument. So I think that, that's one of the things that I think is so um, pernicious and, and, and sort of destructive about the way that meritocracy specifically, competitive models with high pay performance and harsh penalties for failure engender, they don't just engender cheating by the shiftless, they engender cheating by the hard work. All right, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you.